0: Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and you're listening to Green Dreamer. As a community-powered podcast, which does not take corporate advertisers, and we really hope to keep it this way, we do need your help to keep the show alive. And if every listener chipped in just a little bit a month, we would meet our fundraising goal in no time. So join us today at greendreamer.com support. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to sign up to our newsletter at greendreamer.com to receive the highlights and resources from each episode.
1: Poetry, the arts, music, the humanities in general, really do have that power to to humanize and to touch the emotions when, when speaking about various topics. And of course, poetry as political speech does similar rhetorical work, while also still tapping into to really deep personal emotions.
0: Today we are speaking with Dr. Craig santos Perez, an indigenous Chamoru from the Pacific island of Guam, or Guahan, a professor in the English department at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, Craig is also the co-editor of six anthologies and the author of five books of poetry and the monograph, Navigating Chamoru Poetry, Indigeneity, Aesthetics, and Decolonization. We start off here with a spoken word offering, a poem titled Family Tree by Craig.
1: Family Trees Written for the 2016 Guam Educator Symposium on Soil and Water Conservation. Before we enter the jungle, my dad asks permission of the spirits who dwell within. He walks slowly, with care, to teach me, like his father taught him, how to show respect. Then he stops, closes his eyes to teach me. How to listen, ekunguk, as the winds exhale and billow the canopy, tremble the understory, and conduct the wild orchestra of all breathing things. Nizuk Lemai, Ifit, Zoka Nunu, he chants in a tone of reverence, calling forth the names of each tree, each elder, who has provided us with food and medicine, clothes and tools, canoes and shelter. Like us, they grew in dark wombs, sprouted from seeds, were nourished by the light. Like us, they survived the storms of conquest. Like us, roots anchor them to this island, giving strength to reach towards the Pacific sky and blossom. When you take, my dad says, take with gratitude, and never take more than what you need. He teaches me the phrase, eminent domain, which means theft, means to turn a place of abundance into a base of destruction. The military uprooted trees with bulldozers, paved the fertile earth with concrete, and planted toxic chemicals, and ordinances in the grounds. Barbed wire fences spread like invasive vines whose only fruit are the cancerous tumors that bloom on every branch of our family tree. Today, the military invites us to collect plants and trees within areas of the jungle slated to be cleared for impending construction fill out the appropriate forms and wait 14 business days for a background and security check. If we receive their permission, they'll escort us to the site so we can mark and claim what we want delivered to us after removal. They say this is a benevolent gesture, but why does it feel like a cruel reaping? Listen. An ancient wind rouses the jungle, ekunguk. E Zoga calls us to stand tall, listen. Etrunkin Lemai calls us to spread our arms wide, E Etrunkin Nunu calls us to link our hands. Listen, Etrunkin Ifit calls us to be firm, E Etrunkin nidzuk calls us to never break. Listen. Ehalumtano Tanu Dani call us to rise, to surround our family of trees and chant Ahi. No, We do not give you permission.
0: According to the 2010 consensus, the Chamorro people, indigenous Tuguahan or Guam and the Mariana Islands are the most geographically dispersed Pacific Islander population in the United States. I wonder if you could lay the grounds for this conversation by first sharing a little bit about where you are from and the series of colonization that your islands have been through leading to its cultural erosion and the Chamorro language today considered as endangered.
1: Yes, as you mentioned, I was born on the small western Pacific island of Guam, and many people have have never heard of this place. So when I started writing my poetry about my homeland, I did feel the need to, to kind of map and explain where Guam was, because I always was asked, where are you from? And when I said I'm from Guam, it always surprised me that People didn't know where it was or couldn't even find it on a map. And so, so much of my poetry is about kind of mapping Guam and talking about our history as well as my native Chamorro culture. And so, Guam was first discovered by European explorers in 1521 and then was the first Pacific island to be colonized by European powers, Spain in particular. Guam would be a Spanish colony until 1898, when it became a US territory, which is a status that remains to this day. The native Chamorro population is from the Marianas, but as you pointed out, has also have a history of migration and diaspora mainly across the United States. And so many Chamorros now live in California, Texas, and other states. And so we are quite dispersed considering that our homelands are in the far Western Pacific, yet some of us even live as far as New York City. And so that's a little bit of the background of Guam, its history and our people that kind of is is the foundation and, and the beating heart of my poetry.
0: We appreciate you sharing that background. Wars and militarism have certainly played major roles for both the island's past and present-day reality, continuing to contribute to and worsen a lot of the pre-existing injustices and struggles that your people face, and many other islands in the Pacific, like those of Hawaii, where you are now, have shared similar fates in terms of being utilized by the United States for their strategic locations for military purposes. On this note, what are some of the major impacts of militarism on the Pacific, on the bodies of your lands and the bodies of your peoples and more than human beings that you think are important to highlight? And if it feels relevant here, why do you prefer a reframing from the Pacific Islands to Oceania or the Sea of Islands?
1: Yes, this is a very important question. Guam was even militarized going all the way back to the 16th century where the Spanish actually built fortifications there to help protect their galleon trade routes going from Europe to the Americas, and then of course to, to the Philippines and parts of Asia. And so that history of militarization in the Pacific goes back centuries and continues to this day, most violently expressed during World War II, where the Pacific, of course, was a so-called theater of war mainly between the U.S. and Japan. Now, these militarizations and wars, as well as the ongoing violences that we've seen in the Asia-Pacific region, have caused many impacts to our island. One is the acquisition of land for military bases. On Guam itself, about 30% of the island is occupied by different military bases. Now, unfortunately, the military presence also contaminates the land and water, either through weapons testing, uh, nuclear waste, or other kinds of chemicals related to militarization. Sadly, this contamination has caused high rates of of cancer and other types of, of disease and illness in not only the Chamorro people, but as you mentioned also here in Hawaii, which has been used again as a strategic military base. Now, in terms of using that phrase that you said, Oceania, that is also a a way that other scholars of the Pacific have proposed to talk about our islands, not simply as small isolated islands, far out in this vast ocean, but actually as a sea of islands. Oceania kind of signals that these aren't just separate little dots on a map, but actually a blue continent, where all all our homelands are are connected by the ocean, thus giving our voices much more resonance and power when it comes to especially speaking out against the impacts of militarism.
0: On a lot of these islands, there have been growing movements of demilitarization and I'm in full support of demilitarization and denuclearization because I just can't fathom how an increasingly militarized and weapons-equipped world will not ultimately end up in more devastating wars that will cause destruction at levels that we just have not seen before. And at the same time, I know there are people who might ask, if the military power supposedly, quote unquote, on our side within these constructed borders or identifications of nation state citizenship, gave up their arms and military bases and demilitarized, wouldn't that just allow other political powers who are still playing this game of striving for global dominance and constantly upping their military powers and collection of weaponry to have the means to take over? So in other words, and This is not at all a justification for continued militarization, but just a baffling broader question I know many have and that I have and that I don't have the answer to of how we might be able to even move beyond these games of power that lead to many islands like those in the Pacific and also my home island of Taiwan in East Asia as well amidst the brewing Cold War between the US and China being used and valued mostly just for their strategic locations through the military lens. And be be curious what thoughts or remaining uncertainties you might have on this front as well.
1: Yes, I I agree with your politics 100% and I too believe in the importance of demilitarization and denuclearization not only across the Pacific but, you know, across Asia and your own homeland and around the world. As you mentioned, there's so many of us advocating for disarmament and peace as the only way forward. And I deeply believe in this ethics of peace, even though one really can't argue against the idea that, yes, even if one nation demilitarizes, that does not guarantee that another nation will do the same. Nor does it guarantee that there, there will actually be peace. But the way I think about peace is, is more as, as a horizon and the ethics and something that nations need to come together to try to articulate ways of of moving into the future. Because as we can see, if we continue along this path of the proliferation of of nuclear weapons, the continuation of, of forever wars, that this planet will not be inhabitable for us. Not only thinking about the displacement of people's from their homelands because of war, but also thinking about the amount of carbon emissions caused by the military and war itself. The planet is is reaching its limits in terms of being able to cope with fossil fuel burning caused by war and so on. And so my hope is that nations will, will see that In order to to actually live on this planet, we we must find ways to demilitarize and and to live in peace, even though we may have these long histories of, of conflict and tensions. It's just not sustainable any longer.
0: That really resonates with me. And I think demilitarization, starting from somewhere and anywhere and everywhere possible, is the only way to disrupt this ongoing cycle of violence and to reorient us towards the regeneration of life and collective well-being. So that definitely hit deep for me. And I want to shift to your more recent book of poetry, which is Habitat Threshold, which begins with a poem about plastic titled The Age of Plastic. And just to give our listeners a preview and a taste, I want to read a few lines from the piece. Quote, Plastic keeps food, water, and medicine fresh. Yet how empty plastic must feel to be birthed, used, then disposed by us, degrading creators. In the oceans, one ton of plastic exists for every three tons of fish. How free plastic must feel when it finally arrives to the paradise of the Pacific gyre. Will plastic make life impossible? Our daughter falls asleep in a plastic crib. And I dream that she's composed of plastic so that she too will survive our wasteful hands. End quote. I really appreciated how multi-layered this piece is in terms of how it presents these contradictions and nuances and also considerations for the experience of being plastic. And it would be much easier for our listeners to be able to visualize this poem because of how you utilize things like bolded text or italics or the structure, but I would love to hear you expand on some of your creative intentions for this piece and what you wanted to convey through them when people kind of read between the lines.
1: Yes, thank you. I wrote that poem several years ago when my first daughter was born. And at the time, I was also learning about the history of plastic as well as its own proliferation and its ubiquity around the world and in so many different products related to my daughter, you know, the, her plastic crib and plastic bottle and plastic toys. And I started seeing plastic everywhere because plastic is everywhere. And of course, here in Hawaii, we see plastic even washing up along the beaches and collecting in in the ocean, just massive amounts of, of plastic, even outnumbering perhaps some of the the marine life, and so as I as I was writing this poem, trying to address this issue of plastic pollution, I started thinking about what plastic must feel. Plastic is our creation in some way, and you might think of it as as a, a child of of human invention. Yet we just pretty much throw it away and dispose of it, and just kind of discard it, and thinking about what if we we thought of plastic as as a living being, right? As not just a, a empty material with no life, but actually something that is is more than human in a way. And with that in my imagination, plastic did take on life and kind of a very sad life of of a child that was totally disposed. And seen as as just labor for humans to take advantage of, exploit, and then throw away when we are done with it. And so, for me as a poet, I always try to kind of bring out those complexities within everyday experiences and to kind of defamiliarize what is familiar to us so that we might see its deeper meanings, symbolism, and significance within our own human experience. And so that's a little bit of a background about about that poem and thinking about the ways we can reimagine plastic and of course in turn reimagine how we how we use products.
0: And I felt like your creative decisions for the piece really made it come to life for me so I would love to hear more about some of those choices.
1: Yeah, so as you point out, there are different I use different colors of fonts. And basically I was thinking about how plastic will outlive us all. And it it never fully biodegrades. And so I wanted to try to embody that in the form of the poem itself. And the way I tried to capture that idea is by keeping the font of the word plastic black. And then fading out the rest of the words into gray. So hopefully, the reader will see the poem and they'll see how, you know, the plastic will always be there. It's bold, it will never go away. Yet, all the other words, which tell the story about humans and animals, that will all fade into the background. And so, as a poet, I I don't just want to tell a story in the poem, but I also want to create a formal uh, experience for the reader to see that will also capture the the meaning of the poem.
0: Yeah, definitely felt like a sensorial experience for me when I engaged with this poem. And we're going to come back to the power of poetry a little later, but as The Age of Plastic and your collection of poetry at large suggests, There are a lot of these messy entanglements that do not allow for a pure way out. And to bring militarism back in plus tourism, which I understand to be the two major industries in Guahan and Hawaii and other islands in the Pacific, I recognize this messy entanglement in that so many have forcibly and systemically become integrated into and reliant on these very industries that have caused so much destruction and displacement. And then there are also added layers of injustice when people make broad judgments against those who have been pulled to fill these roles as a means of survival, like those recruited into the military who might turn towards it for economic reasons or those who now work in the tourism space and who might have felt the need to commodify a earn a living, or on the plastics front, judgments against people who might need to consume a lot more plastic packaged foods because maybe their traditional lands and food sources have been taken away or compromised for all sorts of reasons. I just wonder what else this stirs within you as we think about the messy and contradicting entanglements that many find ourselves a part of today and struggle with, knowing that there's no way to easily reject or hit exit.
1: Yes, thank you. That was a a really beautiful and articulate way to describe these messy entanglements, as you put it, whether it's militarism, tourism, plastic pollution, and so on. And, you know, I think you're exactly right. So much of our lives is entangled within these larger systems. We could think of, of course, capitalism as well, or the fossil fuel industry. These are the lives that we live within, and we can never fully transcend, escape, or exit, as you put it. And so, as individuals and collectives, we, we do need to find ways to kind of critique, expose, and try to transform and change these systems that we are entangled within, and to be honest, that are, is strangling our lives and, and our planet. And so as a poet and, and activist and scholar, I feel that my responsibility has been to, to raise awareness about, about these issues and to really highlight these complexities, as you put it. And then ultimately, it's going to be up to individuals to make their own choices right, and to find their own ethics and navigate their own lives through these complicated entanglements, whether they work in the tourism industry or are part of of the military, or whether they're reaching to buy a, a bottle of plastic at the store. We make these choices every day. And it's really, there's there's no easy answers and it's a constant struggle. But I think that's you know, it's what we have to do as as poets and scholars and activists is, is to really struggle within these systems so that we can someday change them.
0: I recently conversed with Professor Rune Jano, who focuses on Nordic mythology and animism, and he talked about the limitations of all of the climate reports that have been published in being able to move people emotionally and in more relatable ways and also in more embodied ways as well. And in that conversation, we explored understanding mythology as playing the role of building and creating relations. And here, through engaging with your work, I can't help but think about the potential of poetry in support of climate activism and social and cultural change as well, in how they more likely engage and spark emotions that texts utilizing a language of objectification might have a more difficult time doing. Not to diminish their unique purpose, of course, but to these points, I'd be curious to hear you speak more to what you see as the power and role of poetry as political speech, and activation.
1: Yes, I agree with that as well. I think poetry, the arts, music, the humanities in general, really do have that power to to humanize and to touch the emotions when when speaking about various topics. And of course, poetry as political speech does similar rhetorical work while also still tapping into to really deep personal emotions. And so for me as a poet, it's been a space where I can comment upon these larger, you know, whether they be social, political, or historical issues, in a way that's really rooted in my own culture, my body, my family, and, and my own personal experiences as well. And I think... That makes the art form able to, to touch the listener or the reader on a deeper level that other types of writing or reports or graphs or scientific data is, is not able to do. And as you said, that doesn't diminish their value, um, but instead highlights the importance of collaboration and interdisciplinary storytelling and activism so that we can all kind of come together, bring our our research, our art, our songs, our poems, our dances to the streets so that we can inspire and empower the public.
0: Yeah. And I want to connect this to your more specific focus as well, as your book, Navigating Chamoru Poetry, has shown how Chamorro poetry has been an inspiring and empowering act of protest, resistance, and testimony in the decolonization, demilitarization, and environmental justice movements of Guahan. What more about this would you like to highlight here?
1: Yeah, so for my dissertation research, I studied contemporary Chamorro poetry and Partly I chose that topic because I just love poetry, it's my passion, and I wanted to read other Chamorro writers and learn about how they kind of express our our cultural identity and values. But one thing I started to notice in my research is how so many of the poems address political issues Moreover, they were actually performed at public events and protests or even published in in newspapers or online and so on. And so to me, this really spoke to the power of poetry in our community to, to move audiences, to educate, to critique, and to protest. Now, in my, my further research, I also found that This is not only true in Chamorro poetry, but it's true in Pacific Islander poetry, in Native American poetry, indigenous poetry, and, you know, of course, in many poetic traditions around the world. And so that really solidified to me the value of poetry within these larger political movements, as well as, of course, social justice cultural revitalization and environmental movements as well.
0: I really resonate with your collections of poetry and how they kind of refuse to be simplifiable or summarizable. And also in how their forms taken together, like we just touched on, also reflect, as I interpreted, the bigger messages that you're trying to convey so that there's also, in a sense, a meta-poetry to engage with. And in addition to the emotional aspects, you also try to teach your students that poetry is a powerful form through which to uncover and recover the ecological layers of a given place, end quote. How would you elaborate on this for our listeners who may not have engaged with or been exposed to poetry in this way?
1: Yeah, so I teach a course called Eco-Poetry here at the University of Hawaii. And an important part of the course is, of course, reading, interpreting, and, and analyzing poetry, but also... I found that it's a great pathway through which students can not only learn about literature, but also to develop their own environmental literacy. And they can learn more about the layered ecologies of a place by writing poetry about that place. Because, you know, writing poetry is is not only about speaking from your emotions and experiences, but I often have my students like research the place that we live or or learn the names of trees or different kinds of, of streams and waters and so on. And they do that to write the poem. But of course, in doing so, they're also learning more about the place that they live in. And that's been a very powerful experience to see that manifest in the classroom. In more recent years, I've been teaching more poetry about climate change because As you know, it's an urgent issue. And I've also found that by having students write poetry about climate change, that has also helped develop their own climate communication skills and of course their their climate literacy. And so for me, that really speaks to the power of poetry, not only to inspire us, but to help kind of nurture our own ecological consciousness, which perhaps has, has been suppressed by our urban lives and our connection to technology as well.
0: And in many ways, culture influences our senses of politics. So if we can transform and shift culture, that very likely could reorient people's values and politics as well.
1: Yes, I, I completely agree with you. I think so much of of changing people's behaviors is about changing their their imaginations. And in order to, to change the world, we need to be able to imagine new worlds and new futures. And we could do that through poetry, of course, uh, through film, through novels, music, and so on. And oftentimes people, they lose touch with their imaginations. And they fall into routines and, and systems that kind of determine a certain pathway. Unfortunately, we are on a very dangerous pathway right now. And so I think it's so urgent that we do transform the imagination so that we can then, you know, as you say, kind of transform our, our ethics, our societies and, and the world itself.
0: That's really powerful. And also sometimes things just can't be taught or simply told. They have to be felt and embodied. And as you say, we have to be able to imagine otherwise. So I think that's the beauty of what our engagement with poetry as activism might be able to inspire. And also, I would love to explore the idea of literary activism as therapy. I think personally, for me, engaging with all forms of the arts and music and creative expressions have helped me to stay grounded and... They remind me of the beauty of humanity and the world, even if they may be addressing very heavy subjects at hand. Although I know I struggle with shedding the sense of guilt that I often have when these engagements feel more like a personal relief or a solace for me and may not feel as directly quote-unquote productive or impactful. So how have you thought through the idea of poetry or literary activism as a form of therapy? And how have you personally engaged with it to support your own healing?
1: For me, poetry has, has always been a, a powerful space for for healing, for dealing with trauma, for kind of cultivating resilience in times of, of crisis or, or even depression. And so, you know, I feel like poetry has become that space because It's where I can I can express myself, I can process my emotions, I can try to articulate what I'm feeling, and as we talked about earlier, where where I can imagine otherwise, and so a lot of poets talk about the therapeutic or or cathartic powers of poetry, which which is absolutely true. I I felt it myself. It's helped. saved my life in in many ways throughout the years and it's given me a safe space where i can i can feel the most vulnerable and and human i see this of course in my students as well when they're able to write a poem during a difficult time in their life and to really take those emotions that i think if we let those emotions fester inside of us it can be very negative for our mental and physical health but the the poem and i think this is of course true for many of the arts gives us something creative to do with those emotions so that those negativities don't become destructive and i think it's that creative power that gives us some inspiration some empowerment and resilience so that we can continue to, to live in these difficult times and to confront all the crises that we are unfortunately facing.
0: Well, I know I certainly feel inspired to write more poetry from engaging with your work. And for our listeners who may experience various anxieties from all sorts of socio-ecological pressures and concerns... What are some invitations you might want to leave our listeners with if people are curious to engage with poetry as creative or therapeutic expression themselves?
1: Well, I think definitely for me, it's helped to to keep a poetry journal. And so, you know, as many other writers have done to keep a journal is that space where, where you can just write freely. You can be vulnerable and honest. You can try to articulate those anxieties, express your feelings in a way that is no pressure and is not public, <laughs> it's just for yourself. And so that would be my first tip, just get a journal and have it be that space where, where you can turn to when you need to. And maybe someday the poem will feel like it's, it's done and maybe you want to publish it and share it with others. And while that may seem counterintuitive, what I found to be true is that when I read poems that someone else has written, they often speak to me. And I can see that someone else is, maybe has experienced what I'm experiencing or they're going through the anxieties that I'm feeling. And it, it definitely makes me feel less alone when I can share my work with others and have them relate to it. And when I can read others' work and, and feel that same connection.
0: Well, we are coming to a wrap for our main conversation here. And I want to just leave the space open for you to share anything else that's on your mind that you'd like to leave with us.
1: Well, I guess what, what I have in mind right now is... is a new publication that I co-edited. It's an anthology called Indigenous Pacific Islander Eco-Literatures. And it's a project that I've been working on with my co-editors for about seven years. And it's just published this year by the University of Hawaii Press. And in this anthology features nearly 100 Pacific Islander writers from around our region writing about different environmental issues from land water trees flowers origin stories and and climate change environmental justice and so much more and so in editing this i of course read the poems many times and you know, I feel so inspired by the voices of, of other Pacific writers speaking about these topics, and I hope anyone listening to this episode will, will check it out, and hopefully you too will be inspired by our voices.
0: You said you think that you would rather be on your own Than have to wait and watch another one new love glow Getting used to moving through your days all alone Why mess it up now? You're growing tired of watching your own heart shatter You're creating decisions, being. What has been one of the most impactful books that you've read or a publication you follow?
1: Well, you've mentioned the phrase Oceania before. So I will mention a, a essay called Our Sea of Islands by a Pacific scholar named Epeli Ha'ofa. It's a very influential essay that first articulates the idea of Oceania. And it's one that has really Reshaped my imagination of the Pacific.
0: What is a personal motto, mantra or practice you engage with to stay grounded?
1: One practice I've been doing recently is is hiking here in Hawaii. And so I've been going on on these long hikes every weekend and climbing to to the summits of, of the mountains here, walking through the valleys and streams feeling uh, the dirt and rocks and trees around me and so that practice of hiking has really kept me grounded here in the islands.
0: And what is one of your greatest sources of inspiration at the moment?
1: My greatest source of inspiration at the moment is definitely my students. Our semester just started two weeks ago and I've just been really inspired by by the students I have this semester and their passion for poetry.
0: Well, Green Dreamer, to learn more and stay updated on Craig's work, you can head to craigsantospurs.com. And of course, there will be additional links and references shared within our show notes as well at greendreamer.com. Craig, it's been a pleasure and an honor to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. And sharing your story and inspirations with us. For now, what final words of wisdom would you like to leave us with as Green Dreamers?
1: Well, I don't have words of wisdom, but instead words of gratitude. I just wanted to to thank you for having me and to thank all the Green Dreamers out there for putting together this show and, and for creating such a beautiful community. Thank you so much.
0: This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To make a contribution to help sustain and co-create the future of this show, you can head to greendreamer.com support. Without a media network behind us, we also rely entirely on human-to-human word-of-mouth sharing so that our extensive library of episodes can inspire and reach more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps us out so, so much as well. Green Dreamer is a proud partner of Caliapea Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is Eye of the Storm by Ali Deneen. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our transcript editor is Janice Cantieri. And I'm your host, Kamiya Shane. Take care and I'll catch you soon in the next episode.